By human standards, God's love is reckless. Romans tells us that sometimes you'll see a friend die for another friend. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's reckless by our standards. But God doesn't call it reckless. He calls you by name. He loves you. So I just want us to sit under the reality of that this morning, that if you are here, you are loved. It doesn't matter what history you bring in with you. It doesn't matter what current challenges you are facing. You need to hear it from God himself. If you're here, you're loved. That person in your life that's not here and you're upset with it, they're loved. Because God loves sinners, which is good news, because that's the only kind of people there are. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a morning and a, and a time and a place where we can gather and turn our hearts towards you. We thank you for this love of Jesus that pursues us, that comes after us. And even when we fail or we fall down or the ways that we don't have it all figured out, even when we return back to issues that we thought we had defeated, God, you love us and you pursue us. Thank you for that, God. And so it's in the reality of your love that we sit this morning and we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Be seated. Good morning, church. You want to hear a funny story? No. I don't have anyone. But I did. I did. It is. You cheated. You were in first service. You saw me make, I made a fool of myself first service. I wrote this brilliant intro about Veterans Day because I thought tomorrow was Veterans Day. Turns out, <laughs> turns out that's next week. I, I even asked veterans to stand first service. So I will, they, were, they had fun calling me out. So moral of the story is I can't read a, a calendar very well. <laughs> So I have no intro to this morning's sermon. It is completely derailed. Um, I hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. And so, yeah. All right. So in, in light of there being no intro, let's just jump right into it. So grab your Bible if you would. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 as we continue on our study of the book of Acts, the beginning of the church. Um, and, and as we continue to look at those first believers that are giving themselves to Christ and being filled with his spirit. Uh, we're 2,000 years into this thing called church and following Jesus. They're just a couple of months into it, and yet they have so much to teach us, uh, filled with that fervency for Christ. Uh, we have been studying, uh, starting a couple weeks ago, and we'll finish it up next week, the story particularly of Stephen, who is a pivotal character in, in the development of the church. Uh, we'll see next week, Stephen is the very first martyr in Christendom. He, he dies for his faith and really dies most likely because of the words we're going to study this morning. And so we studied last week him, him standing before the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish religious congress and council, uh, the leaders, and he is teaching them 
uh, about their own history, and, and he, he made a major claim to them last week that they were trying to monopolize God uh, by controlling him with the temple, and then he turns his sights onto this week's accusation. So let's read these. We're going to start in verse 51 of chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be Bibles in the uh, chair in front of you. Grab one of those. Um, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 51. We'll just read through Uh, 53, say a little prayer and we'll get started this morning. This is, to clarify, this is Stephen talking to the Sanhedrin. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Let's say a little prayer. God, we come before you and open up our Bibles this morning. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would open up our hearts and mind and pour yourself in. Do what only you can do this morning, that we might leave this place more in love with you, more connected, more understanding, more obedient than when we came in. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So my my wife's sister, Emily, uh, works and lives in Washington, D.C., uh, and for the last uh, last decade or so, she'd been working for Congress. In 2017, we, we went out to go visit her. And at that point, she was an aide for the House Ways and Means Committee, which was a big, com- is a big committee at the, uh, in the House uh, of Representatives. And they make some major decisions in the House Ways and Means Committee, set the budget, and do all sorts of crazy things. And so the, the Congress is actually in session. She gives us a visit of, of her office. It's really cool. And then she asks, hey, do you want to see the committee room, which is a big deal. Normally, tours don't get to go see the committee rooms in the Capitol building. Uh, and we're like, yeah, really cool. And it's like in between the committee meeting. And so she sneaks us in, and my little family of five, and we're with Emily, and, and, and we, we snuck into this room. And you, it's a big, ornate room. It's really cool to be in there. Emily's telling us all that they're doing in there. And I try Turn around and my kids aren't beside me. And I can, you have that moment of panic that every parent knows of my kids are running free and we're in the Capitol building and I have no clue. And Congress is in session. I have no clue where my kids are. I look up and my kids have made their way up to the seats where the Congress people sit in the Congress in this big ornate room. And not just any seat. Mason is sitting in the Congress in this committee chair seat, and they were up there. And so I did what every parent would do. I took a photo of it, and then (laughs) here it is. (laughs) See their little heads sitting in there. And then I used the dad voice of, get down here right now. (laughs) Trying to whisper your anger, you know, get here, stop. There are certain rooms that require a certain level of decorum, and there are certain people who just don't care, <laughs> and my kids are of that group. There's a certain amount of people that just expect a certain level of respect when you meet them. In the Jewish world, that was the Sanhedrin. 
They would all wear robes with certain color tassels to mark their, their place as being high up in this culture. And they would walk around with their fancy robes. And normal, everyday Jewish folks were supposed to recognize their high position and treat them as such. And certainly, if they were in session and you were there before them and you came before them, they expected you to act with a certain level of, of respect. Stephen did not get that memo. He could just really care less, really. And so we saw last week, and he audaciously stood before the religious scribes and Pharisees, the, the, the ones that are, are theologians and historians and lawmakers, and he had the audacity to tell them about Jewish history. And as we saw last week, he ends with this major accusation that they've been trying to monopolize God by acting like God lived in the temple and they control the temple. But he ends with this major line where he quotes the prophet and saying, but God does not live in houses made by human hands. And if they didn't like that, they really don't like what he had to say this week because he takes it a step up. And what I want to do this morning is I want to, us to understand the accusation that Stephen is making, because he makes a hard one to the Sanhedrin and to the Israelites. But then I want to ask us to have the courage to let him turn the crosshairs of that accusation towards us, and let us also hear what he has to say. Can we do that? All right, okay. You guys got an extra hour of sleep. I'm expecting stuff from you this morning, all right? Come on. Slept in. And your second service. This is like you're hungry. That's what it is. This is supposed to be noon right now. That's okay. okay. All right. Let's check out what he says because he leads off with just, he's calling them names. Listen to what he says. You stiff-necked people. That's how he starts his conclusion. That's heavy. You stiff-necked people. Here's what's interesting. Stephen's not the first one to call them that. Do you know who the first one is to call them that? Even before him? God. Exodus 32. God calls the Israelites at the very beginning in a conversation with Moses. He says, these people are stiff-necked, which is a, a, a word that comes out of, out, of, out of agricultural and livestock. If you've ever had a large cow or horse, I know many of you are like San Diegans native and you never pulled on a horse before or a donkey. They're really hard-headed. But if you have a large animal and you are trying to pull it a certain direction and it's saying no and it stiffens its necks and it refuses to follow you. Any horse riders in the room, there are times when a horse just says nope and it's not going where you want it to go. And so it's this picture of resistance Resisting God, which is why at the end of that verse, look at the end of verse 51, he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And he is straight quoting Moses, which is highly ironic because they are accusing Stephen of saying that Jesus is trying to do away with the customs of Moses. And essentially, Stephen is saying, yes, he is. Because the custom of Moses is you disobeying God. That's the tradition of Moses. Look at verse 39. In describing Moses and his relationship with them, verse 39 says, But our ancestors refused to obey him, and instead they rejected him. And in, in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Do you hear what he's saying? He goes, yeah, Jesus is doing away with the tradition of Moses because the tradition of Moses is you Israelites, and he's one of them, being stiff-necked and not following God. 
Instead, Jesus is doing his own thing where he's creating for himself his own people that will follow God. And he's bypassed all you priests and he's the new priest. Does that make sense? He's making a major accusation, but he's not done. He wants to keep on going and he likes name calling. (laughs) So he moves on from stick neck people to your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That's awkward. I'm always scared of that word in the sermon. (laughs) I'm going to go with you know what that means. (laughs) Circumcision was was a sign given to Abraham that was meant to mark in the flesh and to be a physical symbol of a spiritual inward reality. That the Israelites were God's people and he was their God. Well, it turns out that He's also not the first to call the Israelites uncircumcised in their hearts. Jeremiah 9, guess who calls them that? God. God accuses them, Jeremiah 9, just before the Babylonian exile we studied last week. You people are uncircumcised in your heart. What does that mean? You have held on to the outward symbol, but you have let go of the inward reality. You do not have a relationship with God where you are following him. You are only holding on to the outward religious physical symbol. It's made up. You're not following him in the least. You have no desire. It's a good thing that doesn't happen any longer, right? Let's chat. As Christians, what is our outward symbol that we use to mark an inward reality when somebody is a Christian? Baptism. Baptism. It's a good thing that it's impossible to be baptized and not have a relationship with God. That never happens, right? So let's, let's hear the fullness of what Stephen is saying here and understand this accusation. Because Stephen is saying what really marks a person that's in a relationship with God is not the outward symbol. It's obedience. Obedience. And if you're anything like me in rebellion, I hate that word. I don't want anybody to tell me to obey. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I can do what I want to do. That's kind of funny because I'm married. You get what I'm saying. I don't like that. But he's making the accusation. He's saying it's not the outward symbol that marks the inward reality. It's it's obedience that is truly making the inward reality evident. And and this, this is big. Because as Christians, why do we baptize? Why do we do that? Because Jesus said to do that, right? Go make disciples and what? Baptize them in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And is that where he ends that? It's the Great Commission. Bring up Matthew Matthew 28 here. Look at what he says secondarily to that. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to memorize everything that I have taught you. Is that what Jesus said? Teach them to what? obey. So it turns out that Jesus had from the start what it meant to actually be converted is that you become obedient unto Christ. 
So it's quite possible to do step one, but ignore step two, which often happens in the church because none of us like the word obedience. It's a dirty word. So we like making converts, right? Hey, get baptized. We'll celebrate baptisms and we'll count the number of baptisms. And that is awesome. And we'll put that out there. When we ought to be celebrating the fullness of what that is, which is obedience. It's the true marker of conversion. I, I, I uh, showed a, a video this week uh, to my staff from Francis Chan that I think uh, just illustrates this far better than I can. I think it's brilliant in only way Francis Chan can. So I'm just going to straight up quote him because it's hilarious. He said he grew up playing Simon Says. Uh, and you know Simon Says. Simon Says, pat, my, pat your head. You pat your head, right? He said, but in the church, Jesus said is a different game. In the church, if Jesus says to do it, you don't have to do it. You just have to obey it. You just, excuse me. You just have to memorize it. That totally killed the joke. And Jesus said to do it. <laughs> You don't have to do it. You just have to memorize it. He said, let, 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 me, let me give you an example. He said, say, say I go home, and this is him talking, and I tell my daughter, Rachel, clean your room. And I leave, and I come back two hours later, and she comes out and goes, Dad, I memorized what you said. You said, Rachel, go clean your room. And I can say it in Greek. <laughs> and in a couple hours, some friends are coming over, and we're going to have a study on what it would look like if I clean my room. Aren't you proud of me? And his point hits dead on, doesn't it? For example, Jesus said, go make disciples. And how many of us would say our life mission is to go make disciples? And yet how many of us can quote? I know you can because we just did it well ago. We don't have to do it. We just got to memorize it. Except for Jesus said, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. Which means that if we're not careful, we will repeat the sins of the Sanhedrin. And what's the sins of the Sanhedrin? Look at verse 53. He says, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but do not obey it. So it's not the reception of the law. It's not even believing in God. Because guess what? The demons believe. And they shudder as we've studied in James this week. It's obedience. So it's quite possible for us to quote unquote receive Christ and not obey him. Which means we need to talk about obedience this morning. This dirty O word that none of us likes. See, I think we don't like it because we misunderstand it. We misunderstand what obedience is. So let's, let's just unpack this word a little bit this morning. First of all, obedience is not a call to be a slave to God because God is lacking. It's a call to experience the fullness that God saved us for. Let me explain. We don't like obedience because in our world, when somebody demands obedience for, from us, it's because they're flexing on us and they want to show how powerful they are and they need us to do stuff for them, Right? Serve me. I don't want to have to do the work. Except for God is not lacking in anything. And what in the world could we possibly give God that he can't create for himself? He spoke all of creation into being. Does he need you and I to serve him? No. He's got angels. He's doing just fine. So he's not demanding obedience from us because he's lacking anything that we could possibly bring to the table. We're not his, his slave force. All right? 
That's not how this religion thing is. He doesn't need anything. So when God is calling us to obey, then what is that call about? Well, let's, let's unpack the gospel. We know that we were created by God out of love to experience the fullness of life. It is an overflow of him. And it was our disobedience that disconnected us from that, right? That it's when we began searching for life in any other place but what God has for us, when we ran outside of God's desire, that it brought all the hurt and and heartache that there is in this world. So the whole message is that Jesus came, he dealt with that disobedience, he brings us back into relationship with God so that once again we can live out the life we were created to live. And so now God is calling us to walk in his way and we're like, don't tell me what to do, God. That'd be like if you have a diesel engine in your car. Then you go out and buy a new truck and it's a diesel truck. Um, and, and you go to the gas station and you didn't pay attention to green or red and you put gasoline in your diesel engine, and then you drove down the road, and you started complaining because it stopped working, right? Yeah, and your whole engine has to be replaced, all this thing. So you take it to the mechanic, the shop. He replaces it all. Yeah, and he puts a new diesel engine in there. You're so thankful. And then he says, now go put diesel in there. And you go, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm my own man. I'll, I'll put gasoline in here if I want to put How dare you try to control me? No. He's trying to help you have the vehicle you were meant to have in that, right? To drive the way it was meant. You following the analogy here? Do I need to unpack that more? We good? (laughs) We are restored and given new life back unto God. And so when he calls us to obey, it's not him trying to control you, but him trying to give you the life he created you to have. Jesus says in John 10, I came to give them life and give it to its fullest. And so the call to obedience is a call to experience that life, that I'm going to step in connection with God. We have to change the way we see obedience. It's not him in the sky whipping us into submission. It's him in the sky offering us a new way to live. It's a total different image. It's the hand of a loving father saying, do this and have life. Do this and experience life. It's an invitation, not a demand, which leads to the second thing, that obedience is not a call to earn God's love. It's a call to love God in response and trust him. Oftentimes we don't like the word obedience because we ascribe to God human nature. And in human nature, when you have a parent And though parents in the room, we try hard not to do this. We all do this. We treat our kids better when they're more obedient. And when they're not obedient, we're disappointed. Right? And so kids grow up learning to try to earn their parents' favor by being obedient. And that's how our world works. You earn a raise at work by being super obedient there and doing a better job. We're in a wage-earning world. Heaven, praise be to God, writes a different gospel. The good news is good news because Jesus has already earned for us everything there is to have from God. Hear that. Which means you're obeying God is not about you earning anything from God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has already earned for me my place before God. 
And when I mess up, that place isn't removed. And when I do well, I'm not promoted. Jesus has already promoted me to his co-heir. That's where I am forever. And that's the gospel. Amen. And that's awesome stuff. So we have to change how we see obedience. This is not about obeying God. It's about loving God. It's God's love language. It's about saying thank you. And when you live in a love relationship with God, and, and every time he calls you to do something, it's an opportunity to obey. Look at, look at what Jesus says in John chapter, chapter 14. He says, Jesus, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. But anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Does it get any clearer than that? Let's, let's unpack that with theology real quick. Before we come to Christ, we have a heart that refuses to obey God. It, it cannot obey God. It is broken. All of us are born into this world with a heart that is automatically in rebellion towards God. Right? It is, it is a broken heart. When Jesus is accepted as Savior, Scripture tells us he gives us new life. If anybody is alive in Christ, he has been made a new creation. It's something in theology that we call regeneration. And the biggest marker of a regenerated heart is suddenly where your compass was turned towards disobedience, something happens in your heart, and now where you used to not want to obey God with anything, now you all of a sudden have this voice going, I kind of want to obey God today. What is that? And if anybody, if you're an adult that's experienced regeneration, it's mind-blowing. Because you go from, I used to only want to do what I want to do, and all of a sudden now I wake up worrying about God and what He wants. What is that? That's a regenerated heart. It's because you have love for Christ, and love for Christ desires to obey Christ. Does that make sense? Which, by the way, reverse engineer that. <laughs> reverse engineer that. If there is no desire to obey, then there is no regenerated heart, which might mean that you have done as the Sanhedrin has done and worried about the outside of religion, and you haven't dealt with the heart and let Jesus come in. Does that make sense? Which leads to, to number three here. That obedience is not a call to perfection. It's a call to direction. And this is huge. Obedience is not a call to perfection. It's a call to direction. It's a change of mindset. Because right now, when we're talking about obedience, many of you, like me, are going, well, I'm done. I'm not, I mess up all the time. I don't obey. What's the deal with that? If you are feeling the weight of perfection, then you are not feeling the freedom of the gospel. Because the freedom of the gospel, once again, is that Jesus' perfection covers you and I. He is taking care of the perfection element of all of this. So it should not be lost on us. Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin who pride themselves in being in perfect obedience to God. Paul talks about how he was the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He was awesome. Superman Pharisee, right? He's like, man, I fasted when I was supposed to fast. I gave to the poor when I was supposed to do that. I, he did all, he had all the stuff memorized. He was super theologian. And the whole Sanhedrin, they've got this being religious stuff down. They are awesome at it. And here is this, this man who has the audacity to stand, stand in front of them and go, yeah, but all of you are disobeying God. And they're going, what are you talking about? Look how perfect we are. We're obeying God. And he goes, no, 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 no. He gave you the law way back in the desert, and you guys didn't obey then, but you just set, you set up camp there. 
And you keep on trying to, to be perfect in the law, and God kept on moving. He is about restoring the world back to God. He sent prophets telling you he was going to send a righteous one. You killed him. Then he sent the righteous one, the Messiah, and you killed him. And you are so worried about perfection that you are not following the direction of God. You have accepted that instead of following Jesus, following the Holy Spirit. So we need to have this mindset shift in our brain. Obedience is not about God trying to make you perfect. He's already made you perfect in Christ. He doesn't need to do that anymore. He's not up in the sky with a whip going, do it again, do it again, do it again until you get it right. Do it again, do it again, do it again until you get it right. Jesus has already made it right. That is no longer our burden to carry. So the invitation for us to obey is about obeying the direction. So here's what, here's what that looks like. I, I had a friend in college, uh, who is much more disciplined than I, he, he'd like go running and exercise and stuff. <laughs> and I'd go to the buffet and stuff. I'm like, <laughs> I love, I love Mark. He, he was very disciplined to get up in the morning. And he was one of those guys that just had a daily time where he got up and he read scripture and he prayed. And I, I wanted that discipline. Any of us that don't have discipline, we look at people with discipline and go, man, I want That's why I love Rocky Four when he's like working out. Every time I'm like, man, one day. I've been saying that for like 30 plus years. One day. <laughs> I'm going to be doing upside down sit-ups in a barn in Russia. I'm, I got this. It's coming. I keep waiting for it. But I asked, I asked, I asked my friend Mark, he's like, man, what? Like, how do you do that? He, and he gave me this imagery that I love. He said, you know what? For me, every day that I get up and I, and I have my time with God, it's about me just putting up my cells for that day. It's about me opening my heart's ears and my heart's cell that I could hear the voice of God, that I can follow him throughout my day. And days when I don't start right here, I find that my cells are down and I have trouble following the Holy Spirit. And that lines up directly to what Scripture says. Galatians 5 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The word for Spirit there is wind. It's this picture of, of if you follow the Holy Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. You will go with God as he's calling you throughout the day. And that's the freedom of Jesus Christ, that he's taking care of perfection. I just got to worry about direction. Right? Does that make sense of how he's directed me through that day? But you know, the heart that's so focused on being religiously perfect, it's like a sailboat. And you've all seen them when you go to the marina. And it is pristine. It is beautiful. That guy waxes it all the time. He's cleaning it all the time. It is decked, but it never leaves the harbor. But then you have the sailboat that knows it's a sailboat. And it gets out and it raises its sail and it surfs the seas. Christian, may we understand that the call to obedience is a call to go out into this world with the Holy Spirit filling your cells, guiding you. Hey, go love that person. Hey, go, go, go offer forgiveness to that person. Hey, go encourage that person. Hey, give over here. A daily following of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus says, if you, if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll just go along trusting me in that. 
So I want to end this morning. I'm going to invite the, the band up. And we're going to sing a song about surrender. But, but I want to ask the Holy Spirit to do something here. Because I think each of us have areas in our life where we are stiff-necked. Where, where God is calling us to do something. We're like, no, nah, I'm not. No, I'm good. And so I, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us. But before I do that, let's have a conversation about conviction. Conviction from God when you are in Christ Jesus is a beautiful thing. Because it is God inviting you into more. And he's showing you an area of your life where you were refusing to give to him and you are not allowing him to give you an experience of the more that is Jesus Christ, of the life that he has for you. Conviction is not about tearing you down and belittling you in guilt. Uh, that is what the enemy does. When Jesus highlights something, when God highlights something, it has nothing to do about tearing you down. It has everything to do about building you up. He is showing you in an area that he wants to work in. And it might be uprooting something. It might be that he needs to get rid of some things in your life. But if he's doing that, it's because he wants to bring more life into that situation. All right? That's what Jesus and John says there, even if you are bearing fruit, there are times when he will come and prune you that you might bear more fruit. And, and no tree is excited about being pruned. <laughs> and yet the Holy Spirit needs to do that in our life. So do me a favor and just bow your head. I just want you to open yourself up to God. And I'm going to ask him to, to just stir in this room, in our heart, in my heart, in your heart. Obedience is not an overbearing, demanding thing from God. If he wanted to make a bunch of robots that obeyed his every command, he would have done that. But he made us out of love. And obedience is the marker of a love relationship with God. It's an invitation for him to show you more and more of himself in your life. And if you're like me and you hear that word obedience and you hear God and it automatically brings up some negative things, then we just need to repent of that and let scripture and let God reshape how we understand this call to obedience. God loves you. And he died in Christ to set you free of all the ways that disobedience is wrecking your life. He's freeing you to live a life his way, filled with his spirit. And yet, like the Sanhedrin, we can be stiff-necked. And there are areas of your life right now, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's at work, maybe it's in your mission and what God is calling you to, and you know it, but you're saying no to it. is he calling you to? What things do you need to repent of this morning? Where are you feeling conviction? Holy Spirit, just stir in this moment now. Open us up in our awareness to you. God, just we repent when we respond to you as stiff-necked people and refusal. 
Help us to trust your love for us. Help us to trust your love for us. Right now in your own heart and mind, think about what you need to repent of this morning. What areas you need to give to God. sing this song of surrender. Surrender is not a word we should say lightly. Many of us in growth groups have been studying the book of James, and James warns us not to be just hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Listen, if you're going to sing this word surrender, don't do it lightly. Think about what that means. What is he calling you to actually lay down before him? Some of you, that means major tra- changed actions in your life. Maybe you're surrendering. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is going to talk to you about, but here's the awesome thing about the Holy Spirit. He will talk to each of our hearts individually as we need to hear it. Holy Spirit, stir in this moment. try to repeat the sins of the Sanhedrin. And we too are stiff-necked and we too fall into the rhythms of just being outwardly religious and not having an inward reality of loving you and following you. Change that within us, God. Thank you for your grace. Right now, in each of our hearts and minds, show us the place and time in our day where you are wanting us to just carve out for you. Not out of legalism, but out of, out of love. We want to feel the freedom of living life out in the open seas with you, God. Following your spirit. Church, let's stand in this moment and do me a favor. I just want you to take a posture of surrender this morning. So hold your hands out in front of you and just just take a posture of surrender this morning. May this be an outward symbol of an inward reality. I'm so convinced that doing some amazing things in lives all across this city. And he will continue to stretch out his kingdom into this world through you as you surrender and give your life to following him. It's not... (laughs) Here's the funny thing about the Christian life. It is difficult in its simplicity. (laughs) It's not difficult in its concepts. The concept is simple. Follow Jesus. Jesus said, go make disciples. Go love. Go forgive. Go give to the poor. Go 
Go do these things. It's quite simple. We make it difficult when we pull against it. When we become stiff-necked. Let's repent of that this morning and surrender in love to the one who surrendered in love to us.